0: Good evening, good evening, good evening, good evening to you. Good evening, good evening, good evening. Good evening to you. You. Good evening, good evening, good evening, and welcome, welcome, welcome to Daring Dialogues, I'm your host tonight, Shantae Charles. I hope that you have been having a great and wonderful day. Tonight is our Thinking Thursday, which means that we are back in our study and look at theology. Theology, philosophy, and how it all ties into our current day. We have been reading from Black Liberation and Black Theology by James Cohn. And we've also uh, been looking at White Too Long by Robert P. Jones, which is where we're going to be picking up our reading from tonight. Again, I am going to be reading aloud for about 15 minutes and then we are going to bring in those of you who want to engage us in some conversation. Um, For those of you who are watching by IG, we are also recording live on Anchor FM So if you'd also like to follow us, you can follow us on anchor.fm forward slash daring dialogues and just click favorites and you can keep track of us there as well with our podcast. So we're in the chapter entitled marking and we're in the section of the reading entitled lost cause in stained glass. This is in chapter four, monuments to white supremacy. And I'm very excited because as we know in recent news, um, the last of the monuments has been taken down out of Richmond, Virginia, where they actually had an entire square, uh, Confederate square, dedicated to all of these different monuments of white supremacy. Well, those monuments have been moved. They've been finally taken down. And just on yesterday, just on yesterday, there was a new monument that was established and put up. And I believe it's called the Emancipation and Freedom Statue It's the first of its kind in the United States. And uh, there is no better place, as they have said, than for it to be at the epicenter of the formation and establishment of enslavement here in the United States and the principles of white supremacy being established in the United States right there in Virginia. Um, And so a lot of times people may not understand what, you know, what is the physical significance of this? Well, you're talking about unseating certain ideas and principles and establishing a new set of ideas and principles that need to stand beyond what has stood in the past. We know that there are people who are right now actively fighting progress in the United States, but it's also not just in the United States. Um, These enclaves of white supremacy, these ideas, these doctrines, these dogmas are being carried out by other leaders in other countries. And so, um, While we don't have the previous administration still here pushing it, pushing it, pushing it, um, you know, in a very overt way, we still have, you still have people who are trying to push those ideals forward, even though, um, you know, that person has been moved out of the way. So it is a very good sign um, that progress is going to be made. There are people who are still pushing back, right? They're still pushing back against these notions and these ideas. We know that the fight is not over. Um, As long as we are alive, apparently, there's going to be probably some pushback in terms of these doctrines. But we can move forward as long as we have people who are pushing against the darkness, So tonight, again, we're reading the section entitled The Lost Cause in Stained Glass. The Lost Cause in Stained Glass. Over time, Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, and Jefferson Davis in particular, evolved into Confederate Christian saints who were treated as religious icons. In addition to the public monuments, groups such as the United Daughters of the Confederacy and many upper class Southern whites in general work to incorporate images of this Confederate Trinity in sacred spaces, principally through stained glass installations in churches and other public buildings. By creating these figures in the medium of sacred art and displaying their images alongside or even as Jesus, the New Testament apostles, and the Old Testament biblical patriarchs, lost cause supporters elevated these figures above history and into Christian sainthood while elevating the white south as God's chosen people despite their military defeat. So yes, when people say um, to get rid of these ideas or to get rid of these icons or to get rid of these statues is oftentimes connected to their belief system and their faith they are absolutely right because in these churches these figures as the author is telling us were actually used to portray people from the bible so you're equating these people who were um You're equating the principles of segregation, of discrimination, of uh, white purity, of separatism. You're equating those principles as being connected to what it means to be a Christian, or what it means to be holy, or what it means to be righteous. All right. Of the post Civil War heroes, historian Reagan Wilson describes Robert E. Lee as, quote, the apex of the lost cause pantheon. Lee was described as a gentle and virtuous crusading Christian knight, often depicted as Moses leading his people to the promised land or as a Christ figure. It would not be lost on congregational members that both were tragic yet hopeful analogies. Moses never made it to the promised land and Christ was crucified. But Moses pointed the way to the Jewish people's ultimate arrival in the promised land, and Christ rose from the dead. Hence, the idea of the South, or the ideas of the South, or the principles of the South, rising again. Although Davis outlived the war by nearly 25 years, his arrest and subsequent imprisonment in irons by northern troops at the end of the Civil War became the defining event for his identity in developing this lost cause mythology. Davis came to function as a Christian martyr, whose life and treatment ultimately after the war symbolized the South's broader mistreatment and humiliation. As is true of most heroes, his esteem and myth grew significantly after his death in 1889, and the UDC helped install more church stained glass windows featuring Davis, then Lee, after 1900. By contrast, Stonewall Jackson represented a stern Old Testament prophet warrior, praised for his intense Protestant faith, manliness, and fierceness in battle. Jackson was portrayed as an embodiment of God's wrath. In the face of the emasculating experience of defeat, his image evoked courage, valor, and an unflinching sense of the righteousness of their cause. These stained-glass portrayals appeared not just in tall, steeple, symbolic churches directly connected with these icons. Smaller congregations were also mining the raw materials of the Bible to fashion new meaning from their experience of defeat in the Civil War. Some of the earliest stained-glass depictions installed following the war were fairly straightforward adaptations of biblical stories, to post-war grief and less concern with iconography related to these leaders. In Portsmouth, Virginia, for example, a window in Trinity Church set in place while federal troops were still occupying the city in 1868 depicts a biblical scene of Rachel weeping at a tomb on which are inscribed the names of church members who had died during the war. The choice of Rachel is fitting. In the Bible, Rachel, the wife of the patriarch Jacob, is often evoked as an embodiment of deep grief expressed in the wake of tragedy, but with hopes of a potential restoration of God's people. Churches that were more directly connected to these Confederate leaders developed a more explicit declaration of Confederate Christian sainthood, mapping these leaders' identities onto biblical characters and the war onto biblical narratives. St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Richmond, known as the Cathedral of the Confederacy, contains four floor-to-ceiling stained glass windows, two dedicated to Davis and two of them dedicated to Lee, both of whom were church members during the Civil War. Congregates sitting in the main level of the nave, the central part of the sanctuary, are flanked by a Lee window on the left and a Davis window on the right. Those sitting in the upper-level balcony, are similarly situated between the upstairs windows. The two windows dedicated to Robert E. Lee were installed in 1892 by Henry Holliday, a British painter and stained glass designer. According to a history published by the church, Windows of Grace, a Tribute of Love, the Memorial Windows of St. Paul's Episcopal Church, Richmond, Virginia, the window on the main floor depicts Lee as a young Moses in the attire of a prince turning away from the house of Pharaoh and dropping his wand of office. The balcony window features the general as an older Moses who is depicted kneeling with a halo around his head and a gray beard similar to Lee's at the end of the war. Through thick with mind-bending irony, the analogy is clear. Just as Moses refused service to Pharaoh in order to lead his people out of slavery and into freedom in the promised land, So, Lee refused service to the Union Army in order to lead his people in the South to uphold their freedom to hold slaves and preserve their way of life. And like Moses, Lee didn't live to see his promised land, but the ultimate end of the story is that God's chosen people, the children of Israel and the whites of the South, would. The two Davis windows installed by Tiffany Studios in 1898 is more complex. The lower sanctuary window picks up a New Testament story of St. Paul, who was imprisoned for two years by Roman authorities for preaching the gospel, defending Christian doctrines before the Roman authorities. A clear likeness, the image evokes Davis's two-year arrest and imprisonment by U.S. federal authorities, which Southerners considered an unnecessarily humiliating and unjust treat- treatment of their former leader. The balcony window of Davis is more abstract. According to the St. Paul's Walking Tour brochure, it depicts two large angels of goodness and mercy who by their downcast eyes are implying that Jefferson Davis merits their attributes. The windows present Davis not as the traitor that he was, but as a martyr who is faithful to Christian principles, even when wrongfully imprisoned. Even the angels testify to his virtues and the righteousness of the lost cause against the U.S. government, which is depicted as Rome. Perhaps the most prominent and successful United Daughters of Confederacy effort involved the placement of four large 4 by 6 stained glass windows honoring Lee and Stonewall Jackson in the nave of the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., the second largest religious building in the country. The National Cathedral holds pride of place because of its symbolic importance as both a religious and a civic space. The cathedral has served as the site of state funerals or memorial services for presidents, from Woodrow Wilson in 1924 to George H.W. Bush in 2018. As the setting for other semi-official state events, such as presidential inaugural prayer services, and as the gathering place for national mourning in the wake of horrific events, such as the terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001. The Lee Jackson windows, as they came to be called, were installed in 1953 and represented the culmination of a long effort by the United Daughters of Confederacy to mark this symbolic sacred space with white supremacy. And I've had this discussion before with people, um... As we talk about the the office of the president and the fact that the president does go to this sort of memorial service um, at the National Cathedral and it's a closed service. So people don't really know kind of like what goes on, but we what we do know and what we do understand as we look at every single president that has come through is that there has to be. Some sort of commitment to uphold the principles of white supremacy in order to serve that office. And it doesn't matter if you're white or black. In order to serve that office, there is a upholding of the principles of white supremacy. Well, now it makes a little bit more sense knowing that that space that they go into to have their quote unquote inaugural prayer is also marked for white supremacy. Two windows each are dedicated to Lee and Jackson, with each divided into an upper and lower pane featuring images from different times in the general's lives. All four windows contain either the Confederate battle flag or the less familiar stars and bars, the first official flag of the Confederacy, and each ties them specifically to Christian iconography. So while everybody was complaining about the storming of the Capitol, And how no Confederate flag had ever been brought into that space. Well, you had them etched into the National Cathedral where all the presidents go. Which again, you can't say, oh my gosh, we're so shocked about what happened when you have embedded in the National Cathedral symbols to white supremacy. The second Lee window is particularly striking featuring a Christ-like image of him. Dressed in long robes and haloed, he is standing with outstretched arms and open palms surrounded by the words, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace. An allusion to a New Testament passage where a righteous man declares that his life has been fulfilled because he has lived to see the Messiah. The first Jackson window depicts a uniformed Jackson kneeling with an open Bible in his hands in a war camp setting. Above his head flies the Confederate battle flag and to his left are words reading the Bible. The second Jackson window portrays the general as a Christian knight in white armor, stretching his arms wide as he steps across a river. In front of him are heaven's bright golden open gates and large trumpets. His figure is surrounded by the words, and he passed over and all the trumpets sounded for him. A line alluding to the dignified death of Mr. Valiant for Truth, a courageous character, in John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress, from this world to that which is to come, and also echoing Jackson's final words before his death. Symbols the confederate battle flag now we're gonna stop here but um, next time we're gonna get into the symbol of the confederate battle flag and its importance and then um, we're gonna talk about next time the turning point that happened the massacre at Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston but what I want us to focus in on here is the fact that these things are deeply embedded, not just into the ideology of our country, but they're embedded into our symbols. They're embedded into our buildings. These people wanted to cement their figures, their ideology, their symbols into the country in such a way that it would take Great effort to remove these symbols. This wasn't just like a drawing or a painting, you know, that could be painted over very quickly. These were statues, several hundreds of feet high. That as we have been seeing all around the country, have needed cranes. (laughs) Okay. To lift them and haul them off. And it takes several hours to do this. And also now we see. All of this intricate stained glass work. Embedded in religious places. Where people go to worship. They've replaced biblical characters. Hear that. They replaced biblical characters. With their own confederate icons. They have made them equivalent. So when we go back to. Thou shall have no other gods before me. What have they been doing all this time? And this is across the country. He's just talking about the few main ones. But you can probably guess that a lot of these stained glass images that people think is the Apostle Paul and Moses, if you probably inspect it a little closer in your wonderful little Americana church in small town America it's probably a confederate soldier of someone posing as Moses, Jesus, Paul, okay, They really they kind of stuck with those three mainly. But I'm sure if they could try to correlate their lost cause and correlate their feelings of being mistreated. Because no, you can't continue to own human beings. They felt like that was a mistreatment and a miscarriage of justice for them that they were stopped from owning other humans. But they're going to immortalize how they felt about their heroic figures and they're going to substitute out biblical people for confederate soldiers. That's a whole, whole problem. (laughs) So this is what I'm sharing tonight. If you'd like to come on and um, give some conversation around this about The ways that white supremacy continues to embed itself in American society. I'm going to bring you on at this time. If you are listening by Anchor FM, I want to thank you for your time and attention. And I hope that you will join me tomorrow as we're back with getting good with money for our Finance Friday. Take care and God bless.